Good morning. We're, we're on day two of our last week of uh, this reset series. And we're talking about the fact that, that change is not just an individual project, but it's actually a community project. That the scriptures, particularly in Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 4, that Paul writing to the church in Ephesus really says that, that your change project is affecting God's agenda for the whole world because his agenda to reach the world with the gospel is through his church, particularly through the local church and through our community together so that your maturity brings maturity to the church. Your immaturity keeps the church immature. And so Paul gives this really clear picture that you and I and our experience of the abundance of life in Christ and our experience of the gospel is greatly affected by the process that God has put in place that we change as a community. Not simply that we change individually, though the individual and personal change is important. Every step you take in the right direction is a step that the church of Jesus Christ is taking in a right direction. So so in, in many ways, your change project is more important, more dramatically important than just becoming a better person. It's your way of impacting the whole world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm a student of church history. For years, I taught a class at Nyack College on the history and theology of revival. And church history uses terms that are, that are pretty important in terms of God's work through the church to reach the world. Now, these terms are revival, renewal, and awakening. And oftentimes when people are writing church history, and there's some significant people who have written on these kind of movements of God in generations and in certain periods of time, and they've used these terms, revival, renewal, and awakening, and they often are used interchangeably. Um, What took place in the 18th century affected, in the English-speaking world, affected the United States, uh, which had not yet be, you know, had not yet become the United States till the end of that century, but um, that was called the Great Awakening. This was in the six, uh, 1730s and so on. Jonathan Edwards, uh, the Wesleys, George Whitfield. But uh, in the U.S., in the colonies, it was called the Awakening, the Great Awakening, but in Britain, it was called the Revival. So you can kind of see that these labels are used quite often to describe something that really is an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. And my heart, my work in my life, my prayers, is that we would be a part, particularly for those of us who live in New York, for those of us who were in the Northeast, which had known these incredible awakenings, that we would be a catalyst for an awakening again, for a revival. And so this this idea is, is, you know, you can do the ordinary things 
of God. For, for example, if you preach the word of God with conviction, you will see people be convicted. I mean, that's, that is, you know, the very ordinary in some ways expectation of God's word. If you share the gospel with frequency, you will see people come to Jesus. That's the ordinary results. But when we talk about renewal or revival or awakening, suddenly the ordinary becomes extraordinary. Uh, Richard Owen Roberts, an expert on, on revival, he says, revival is the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit, which produces extraordinary results. And I, I, I can't help but in my heart, that's... Uh, I've seen it, and I've experienced it at times, and every time I've experienced it, I just want more of it. I just want more. Um, For me, uh, when I think about church, when I think about uh, the vision I have for for the life of the church, it's not a book that somebody's written. It's the book of Acts. I mean... Acts chapter 2, where you start to see every day people being added to the number of the fellowship, and they were breaking bread together. They were committed to one another. They were worshiping in public. They were worshiping in private. There were no needs that anyone had. Acts chapter 4, they were willingly sharing their lives with each other. I mean, to me, that's, that's the vision of the church. What we've looked at the last couple of days at Ephesians 3 and 4, that's God's vision of the church, a church that breaks down racial lines and, and, and has people loving one another deeply because of our connection to Christ, not our connection to our culture or our, our past or our nationality. To see people of all socioeconomic classes loved and treated with dignity that's that's the real church. That's the vision of the church where there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female because Christ himself has brought, broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Having broken down the hostility between us and God, he has broken down the hostility between us and each other. And you have to understand, I, I think if you look around, it's not ordinary. It's rather extraordinary. We divide up. Uh, we divide up along some pretty um, uh, significant lines, whether it's racial division or cultural division, or it's economic division, or just tradition, whatever it might be. So we need, and I, you know, all three of these words are somewhat interchangeable, but we need renewal. The church needs renewal, but it begins individually. But see, your individual renewal brings renewal to the whole body. We need revival. We need an awakening. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about what, Mark, again, Mark Sayers uh, writes a good bit about renewal and revival. And he, he defines these terms this way, and I like his definition. He says, renewal is the refreshment, the release, and advancement that individuals, groups, churches, and cultures experience when they realign with God's presence. You know, not just God's mission, 
But when there's an alignment with God's presence, when there's a hunger for the relational presence of God, that's renewal. Because when you align yourself with the relational presence of God and that becomes you know, what you're turning to. He becomes your refuge. He becomes your daily praise. He becomes, you know, the one that you've put your ultimate hope in and you're responding. Then refreshment comes, release comes, advancement comes. And when, it, when re- renewal comes to a church, the church it has aligned itself and, and with its God-given purpose. This is... This has been, at Risen King, this has been the goal of my entire leadership is that we are partnering with what God is already doing. We're not trying to get God to come with us. We are listening, we are responding, and we are following where God is going. So the, the presence of God um, becomes everything. The presence of God, that my heart cannot exist, my heart can't live, my life cannot flourish without his presence. If your presence doesn't go with us, Moses said. You know, uh, if you think about that, that's in Exodus 34, if you think about that with me for a minute, Moses had God say to him, I'll, I'll make you a great nation. Moses said, uh, God said to Moses, you know, I will make you a great leader of the people. I'll do all these things. But because the people are so stubborn, because the, uh, my presence will not go with you. Now, obviously he's not talking about his omnipresence because if God, wherever God, wherever we are, God is present. So he's talking about his relational manifest presence. That won't be with you because of the people's sin. And Moses cries out, and he says, if your presence doesn't. You see, he didn't care about success. He didn't care about power. His heart had become all about the presence. This is, you see, you can do church without the presence. You You can lead people into your programs. You can get tithes and offerings. You can build buildings without the presence. But once you really know the presence, then you, you can't live without the presence. And so Moses said, I don't, I don't want success. I don't want power. I want your presence. And that, that's the call on the church. That's, that's why we're in a season. That's why we call this the reset, is that we need renewal. We need renewal of our hunger and our not letting go of the presence. Well, Sayer says, what's revival? Well, he says, revival is when renewal occurs on a large scale. So that instead of just a few people who are experiencing renewal or just one group experiencing renewal, it happens on a large scale. Oh, friends, wouldn't, isn't that what we want for our lives? Not just for us to experience renewal, but for the church, for the whole regions to experience renewal. This brings significant advancement, growth, and kingdom fruit to a city, a people group, a movement, a region, or nations. <laughs> Mark Sayer says, revival is renewal gone viral. <laughs> uh, can, in my studies of re- revivals, you see, real revivals are not just all of a sudden Christians start feeling better about themselves. 
Real revivals are such alignment with the presence of God that, that out of his presence, there comes a, 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 a supernatural, extraordinary compassion. See, that in a way, you could, you could contrast the church. A church of renewal is like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. A church without renewal is Martha, busy in the kitchen, around Jesus, but angry at Mary, because she's not doing enough. You see, Jesus knows that if he says to Mary, go and make me a sandwich, Mary Emile is going to jump up and go make him a sandwich. Because out of his presence, her compassion and her ability to meet needs is at its best. You see, you're not turning away from the world when you turn in your passion for the presence. You are now, instead of seeing God through the world, through your circumstances, through the chaos, you're now saying, seeing the chaos and you're seeing the world and you're seeing the needs through the very eyes of Jesus and his eyes are filled with compassion. When I was in Colombia back in the late 90s, God was moving in an um, unbelievable move. I mean, it was, it was incredible to be a part of it. Everywhere I went, people were hungry for God. Now, some of it was their circumstances had become rather desperate. The cartel, drug cartel was coming down. The economy had been propped up by drug money. And things were happening, and people were very insecure, and there were assassinations, there were deaths going on. And yet people were so hungry for God. They would spend all night together, 50,000 people in prayer in a stadium, praying for the presence, praying in the presence. It was, it was an amazing experience. And I was right in the middle of it. I had, all I could, all, it, was like, <laughs> it was like there was a wave and all I had to do was get on the wave and just surf the wave. It was that powerful. And I was preaching one night in a church. And then when I finished, the pastor said, will you pray for our people? It was about 600 people. And about 300 came forward for prayer. And that night, the Holy Spirit met those people in such a powerful way. Um, deliverance took place, heal, instantaneous healings one after another. Um, people got saved, met Jesus in a powerful way, gave their lives to Christ. It was awesome. But, you know, I had no, I had no power to heal, save, deliver. I had no ability to do any of those things. But I was in the presence. And his compassion, this is what I felt the entire time. The compassion of Jesus. So my Spanish was pretty poor. My Spanish was pretty limited. But in the compassion of Jesus, suddenly I could hear and understand everything they were saying in Spanish, not, not translate it. And suddenly I could say anything I needed to say in prayer. And praying in a language is one of the most difficult communications because it has a, there's a whole aspect of what you have to speak in. It's called subjunctive. It's very complex. And I was able to speak. I was able to pray. I was able to understand. 
You see, if you live in the presence and you live in the compassion of Jesus, then you will meet needs. Remember what I said, it's the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit uh, producing extraordinary results through ordinary people. Since the fall, God has been in the renewal business. We all sense that something is wrong with the world and we desire a better future. We naturally try and move toward renewal. We either yearn for renewal or lament its absence. Yet without God, our own flesh-driven renewal programs, both personal and corporate, will actually bring more harm than good. See, there, and again, I'm, I'm basing this on some really good uh, teaching by Mark Sayers, but he says, we face four options. A human-driven renewal, in other words, to renew in our own human strength. Stagnation, to attempt to press pause, ignoring renewal while trying to avoid decline. We slip into decline. And, and, and I can tell you from what I, I, you know, the experiences I've had, because I, I had this experience of working with uh, denominational districts in the South. And I did the autopsies on, tw- on 20 dead churches. And, and what was fascinating is they were all the same. They all thought they were unique because they were in different cities, different, lo- you know, some urban, some suburban, some rural. And yet every single one of them died the same death. And mu- much of it was always these things. They either tried to humanly make their church alive or they resisted God's work to make them alive and actually stagnated. But every single one of them had resisted the renewal of the Spirit to the point that they slid not only into decline, but they slid into death. And, and, and the common characteristic is that they had, they had public services and no private community, no no personal, no spiritual community with one another. They had services on Sunday morning and they got it down to where they could kind of catch up on each other in about 10 minutes. They had their hour-long service. They had their 10-minute catch-up, maybe some coffee, maybe Sunday school or whatever. And then they were done with each other for the week. They had nothing else. Every dead church had only a public expression and nothing that was in the community, nothing that was in each other's lives. And where I, see, where I saw healthy churches is the public expression was just, a, in a way, a small percentage. It isn't that they, you know, they had effective services, they had attractive services, yes. But what made them alive was that they were involved in each other's lives. They were connected to each other in deep ways well beyond just the Sunday morning service. And every declining and dead church I saw did not have a life together. They had, they had Sunday morning, and that was enough for them. There was no hunger for God. There was no hunger for fellowship. There was no hunger, you know, even to be in each other's company. They only were together because they came on Sunday mornings. But you see, when God is working, like I hope he's working with you in this Reset series, is you're realizing this can't be self-centered. It isn't about the success of a church. It's not about even the power 
of you know our morality over the culture. It's not about that. It's about the presence of God moving us in such a way that we're no longer focused on self, but we're God-focused. We're aligning with the presence of God, which then aligns us with the plan of God so that God can do the extraordinary things with us that produce the extraordinary results. Again, Mark Sayers is helpful to me. He says, renewal is God's tool to move history towards his ends. God is intent on partnering with humans in his plan to redeem the world. God is profoundly relational. That last statement is, is so profound. I know, profoundly relational. In other words, God doesn't bless plans. God doesn't bless programs. God blesses people. God is relational. He, obviously, he's not against organization. He's not against creativity. He is creative. He's organized. That's who he is. But whenever God is blessing something, it's because he's blessing people. He's blessing persons. His favor is not on a program. It's on a person. And it's on his church. So what is God up to? Well, God is relational, and so he's intent on inviting us into his mission. I know this is, I mean, this is nowhere near in comparison, but this, this fascinated me. My wife um, is a, a relational person, deeply so. And anything that she does, she wants to do it with me. So if she's going to the grocery store, she wants me to go to the grocery store. If she's shopping for a, a, a jacket or a coat or a blouse or pants, whatever, she wants me to go with her. She's intensely and profoundly relational. When she does something, she wants there to be a team doing it. She wants, she's going to want the Christmas tree put up, and she's going to want me to do it with her because she's profoundly relational. She doesn't want to do things. You see, her idea of marriage is that we do things together. Now, is that revolutionary? No. That's where she's like God. This is, the, this is in some ways like mind-blowing, that God is intensely relational, so he doesn't want to do it without you. <laughs> he wants to do it with his church. He wants to do it with his daughter. He wants to do it with his son. He who is the bridegroom wants to be with his bride. And he doesn't want you chasing after others, but he also doesn't want you going off and doing good things alone. So the mission is relational. Yeah, it's still a mission, to be as witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, but it's an intensely relational mission. It's kind of funny. I, I was uh, doing some kind of profile. I can't remember which one it was, but I was answering a question, and it says, you know, are you more into, you know, are you more into um, results or are you more into people? And I'm like, people are the results. And the results are people. So it's kind of hard to answer that question because, you know, I, I was always, yeah, I was always a task-oriented person. But learning the relational heart of God, the task is people and people is the task. So he's inviting us. He doesn't want to do it alone. And in truth, if you have understood the idea of flourishing, your life must contain the element where freedom you are determining, I want to do it with you, God. Not I have to do it. 
but I want to do it with you, God. You see, it, in, in some ways, motivation is everything. Your heart is everything. In some ways, if you're not doing it because you want to, then it really doesn't count. So God says, I want to do it with you. I want to reach the whole world with you. And you have to say, God, I want to do that too. And I will align my purposes with your presence so that I will experience your extraordinary power to accomplish the mission. But without your freedom, without you freely choosing in, then the whole thing falls apart. But then you see if this other, these other two elements of flourishing aren't there, number one, that you begin to say, this gives me meaning. And you might say, well, Mike, you know, it's your job to pastor people. Yeah, but I've met pastors and it didn't give them meaning, meaning to pray with people, to counsel people, to love people. And one of the reasons that you can endure anything is because you think it matters. Because you believe it has meaning. It gives you purpose. See, without that, you can't flourish. I, you have to, when you look at sacrifices in your life, when you look at suffering, you have to be able to say, this, this, this is meaningful. This matters. This is, will not be forgotten by the one who cherishes even the tears that we've cried in heaven. So we must freely and willingly choose into the purposes of God, align our lives with his presence and his purpose. And then, then you see what Paul is talking about here is you have to make space, not just Sunday. You have to make space willingly for meaningful relationships that both give you the opportunity to receive and to serve. See, God has put us in community. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that, but I, and I, I have a whole lot more that I'll share over the course of this week. But there, there are elements of a revived or renewed group. For example, it's a community of truth. And it's a community of repentance. And we'll come back to that. But I wanted to, to, to end this morning with this. If we're to be a true community, we have to be a community of grace. Listen to this. A key verse for me in recent years has been the first beatitude, which I paraphrase as, Blessed are the broken people, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God's blessing is found among the broken people. I don't rejoice in people's problems, but I do rejoice to be a part of a community of broken people. Because what's the alternative? Well, it's a community of pretending people. See, where people have problems, but the culture, the church culture, the community doesn't allow them to be open, then the people have to pretend. So then they can't be true community, a community of truth, a community of repentance, or a community of grace. Now, churches like this are very nice, they're neat, they're respectable. But personally, I'd rather be in a messy church because messiness revealed, the mess revealed in our lives reflects a culture of grace. You see, we pretend that everything is okay because either we don't trust God's grace for ourselves or we don't trust others to show us grace. 
In John chapter 4, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman. She has gone to the well in an hour that assured that she would meet no one from the town. You see, shame leads to hiding. But after this Samaritan woman meets Jesus, she runs to the community that she's been avoiding. And she says, come see a man. Here's, here's, here's the key part. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. See, knowing everything that she had ever done, Jesus offered her, still offered her, living water. Her testimony of Jesus, his presence. You see, this is the presence. Her testimony of Jesus makes her run back to the people she's avoided and say, come see this man. Because because of Jesus, she has no need to hide. And neither do we. Grace sets us free.